You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Middle East Analysis. James Abbott in the chair once again. And it's a bit of a somber tone, to be honest, today. And and the reason for that is that the subject of this podcast is somewhat obvious. The alarming violence between Israel and Palestine. And actually, most of our podcasts, we touch upon some level of tension between Israel and Palestine. And perhaps every five years, sadly, we find ourselves analysing a serious conflict or even a war. Now, the latest episode in this affair was sparked in a small neighbourhood in East Jerusalem. Sheikh Jarrah and a dispute over four homes with likely evictions. The Palestinians living there, of course, um, plus we've seen violence at the holy sites during Ramadan, culminating in bombing in Gaza and many very, very distressing scenes on our TV screens, Harry. And you and I have often talked about this sort of never ending cycle of violence and simmering anger at the very least, even when things appear peaceful. You know, I I don't know what the first thing to say is. I'll say hello to you because that's uh, cordial, but this is a terribly sad affair, isn't it? Hello, James. Yes, it is a sad affair. And uh, for once, I'm a little bit subdued because of the levels of violence and the darker horizons that I'm staring at in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You're absolutely right. Uh, We keep coming back to this every now and then. So there is a very strong sense of deja vu here. But having said that, with that sense of deja vu, with that sense of uh, subdued depression, there are also lots of people who are losing uh, limb and life, people who are seeing their properties damaged, hopes dashed. And at the end of the day, you say, To what end? Because once inevitably this latest uh, chapter of violence comes to an end, will it have resolved anything? Or will the end of this chapter be, ironically, the preparation for the next chapter of violence unless something uh, proper is done? And at the moment, part of the depression, part of the distress more than depression that I actually feel as I follow the news, as I look at the pictures, as I uh, talk to fellows uh, who know quite a bit about what's happening, I realize that uh, this sense of distress, this sense of violence and conflict is almost open-ended. And so, yes, it's, it's worrying times for everybody. It's worrying for Palestinians. It's worrying for Israelis. I look at the topography and I see distress and uh, lack of hope or optimism. I look at the world, which seems to be uncaring. And so the violence continues, the uncertainty continues, the lack of a resolution continues. And to use a Palestinian term, the Nakba of 1948 continues today. It's ongoing and it is impacting the psyches, the characters, the thinking and the demeanor of both Israelis and Palestinians. And that's a good word, actually, because whatever bit of this you class as a catastrophe, from whatever perspective you come at it, it is certainly a catastrophe. And the news outlets, of course, are covering this story, as you'd imagine, from all angles. And we can talk later on about how fair those angles are. It's certainly hard to keep up and and to form a coherent vision of what's going on in your head, or at least it is for me, Harry. But we're going to do this a little bit differently because there's no point covering the ground that's already been covered all over the place. You're going to give us a a nice rounded analysis really with with a sort of a bit of an end-to-end look at this from your perspective and we're going to start Harry by talking about the Palestinians in in Jerusalem and I've been not you know not many times but at the same time it is clearly a holy city everyone's holy city in many ways certainly the the Jews Christians and Muslims And in a sense, indeed, of course, that's what brings about some of these problems or or claims over various parts of it, doesn't it, Harry? Absolutely does. And if I may just sort of add something to what you said in your intro there, James, 
Unfortunately, this chapter of violence had many stations to it. It's not a question of we went to bed one night and then we woke up the next morning, wherever we are in this wide world of ours, and we suddenly heard of Israelis and Palestinians bombing each other uh, in Gaza and across parts of uh, um, Israel. It has a sequence, and that sequence actually started with the holy month of Ramadan, where every year young Muslims congregate at the entrances to Damascus Gate. Now, Damascus Gate is one of the best well-known gates in Jerusalem. I know it quite well. I've been in and out of that gate so many times because it leads to the old city of Jerusalem. And the Israeli army and the Israeli police, for some reason, decided they would not allow the Palestinian youth to congregate there during or after the iftar meals. And that led to a whole host of confrontations in the heart of Jerusalem between Palestinians and the Israeli police or the Israeli army. That, of course, went uh, parallel to the confrontations and the protests that were taking place in a very rather upmarket neighborhood of Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah, where the Israeli settler uh, group was trying to evict some uh, Palestinian families from their homes because they claimed that those homes in which the Palestinians were living were actually owned by uh, Israeli Jews during Ottoman times. And that, of course, led to a lot of uh, anger, a lot of angst, and a lot of tension between Israel and the Palestinians. Then, lo and behold, the Israeli army went into the uh, Haram al-Sharif, the Muslim sanctuary, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, when people were worshipping during Ramadan in the mosque, throwing stun grenades and sort of apparently chasing terrorists, or so the story goes. And then after that, the tensions augmented, gathered so much, became so unbearable that we later had the Gaza chapter where uh, the Palestinian resistance factions in Gaza lobbed missiles randomly, I would think, uh, because comparatively speaking, they're quite uh, primitive, into Israel, hitting areas in Tel Aviv. That's quite something uh, for the Palestinian resistant factions, Ashkelon and other areas. And of course, the Israelis Uh, attacking back with a vengeance uh, many, many sites in Gaza. We've seen pictures of those big towers crumbling. One of them hosted Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and other international media in it. And the fighting continues, the deaths continue. Uh, The Palestinian functions have uh, lobbed 3,000 pretty much rockets toward Israel. On the other side, you've got 50 babies that were killed in Gaza. Settlers descended upon a Palestinian uh, field recently in Nablus in the north of the West Bank and put gasoline on the olive trees and burnt them. All this is basically a tit for tat, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a recreation of Hammurabi's law or even the Roman law of Lex Talionis. And basically, it continues, it continues, the enmity, the bitterness, the vilification almost seems unending. People killing each other, two narratives, Arabism versus Zionism competing with each other, neither one really making any headway through this conflagration. And the world watches and the world basically dishes out political Prozac in the, in the form of statements coming from the EU, statements coming from the United States, statements coming from the Islamic uh, Conference. And you're basically wondering, as Professor Rashid Khalidi of Columbia University said in a webinar recently, bleats of distress galore from the world. But is something changing on the ground? Precious little, I would say.
Yeah, sadly. And we'll come on to your I am not a prophet section, as I call it, when we uh, look to the future. And I know exactly that you'll, what you'll declare at that point. But picking up on a, a few of these realities as we shall over the next half an hour or so, Harry, I mean, yes, Gaza is the most graphic and visual of these with the bombs being dropped and, and then, of course, rockets being fired towards Israel. I mean, it is heartbreaking. Gaza often seems to bear the brunt. And, you know, even on a good day, it's it's a locked in place with, with poor resources and poor infrastructure and, and literally poor people as a result of that. And, you know, even when I was there, I, I kind of experienced power going off, water shortages, you know, the whining of drones. You realise, of course, that, you know, no one really is allowed to pass through that airspace. So what you're hearing are likely to be surveillance drones and, and such like. So, you know, it always feels like a potential battleground, Gaza, doesn't it? Now, I've read a lot of analysis. I'm really interested in your point here because, you know, you've got Hamas running the territory. The people are always suffering, always in a bad place. Is it too cynical to suggest that you know, Hamas, to a certain extent, is is taking its front foot stance in light of the cancelled Palestinian elections to sort of place itself at the heart of the resistance? No, it is not too cynical, James. I mean, there is there is something to be said about that. I think both Hamas on the one hand and the Palestinian factions in Gaza, as well as Israel and particularly Prime Minister, the caretaker Prime Minister Netanyahu, both of them are using this Uh, not only in a sense in order to have a battle of uh, narratives between Palestinians and Israelis, between Arabism and Zionism, but also for their own ends as well. It is quite true, actually, that when uh, people see how mute, how silent, how ineffective, how ineffectual the Palestinian Authority has been in Ramallah, uh, then one could say that, oh, were it not for Hamas and the other Palestinian factions in Gaza, then who would care to fight for the Palestinians? And there is, I suspect, a certain pride felt by those who follow the Hamas ideology that, yes, here are people who are fighting, who are resisting, who are struggling uh, for the Palestinian cause. Conversely, I would say that uh, Israel, and in particular Prime Minister Netanyahu, has reaped a lot of benefit from this war, if I may call it benefit, given the uh, sacrifices on both sides by both peoples in terms of deaths and destruction. Why? Two very simple things. One, a couple of days before this huge violence erupted, there was a lot of serious thought that finally the logjam was going to be broken and somebody else in the person of Yair Lapid and Naftali Bennett together were going to form a new government in Israel. And for the first time in a very long uh, period, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was going to lose his throne, his seat as prime minister in Israel. Well, this war happened. Uh, The whole Uh, psychology of the Israeli political scene changed. Naftali Bennett said, I'm not going to work with Yair Lapid anymore. And therefore, uh, his position, uh, Netanyahu's position was consolidated yet again as the only option for a remaining prime minister. And of course, the second point to that is not only does he remain prime minister in all likelihood after we have a ceasefire, because inevitably there is going to be one. The question is how much price will have been paid by either side. And of course, it's disproportionate because the war itself is asymmetric. Zigzagging rockets on the one hand, bad and uh, disapproved as they are by me and the world community, are nothing compared to the attacks being waged upon uh, Gaza by the Israeli Air Force and the tanks, etc., etc. So once that happens, if he remains or retains, I would call it a throne, Uh, of a prime minister, of course, that firewalls him from the legal troubles he has in the high court, three huge corruption cases that would have ended very badly for him, were it not for the fact that as prime minister, he retains his immunity and the 
courts cannot touch him. So both sides cynically have actually uh, benefited from this uh, violence as we see it, this recrudescence in the violence. But having said that, it's more really a question of what next rather than talk about that. It's a little bit, if you want, uh, James, and sorry to digress a bit, in this country, we're talking about the vaccine rollout. And the prime minister said that he's going to uh, have a public inquiry about what went wrong with our policy of uh, the vaccine rollout and what did we do wrong at the beginning that caused so many deaths, so many, many deaths in this country from the coronavirus. But the question that was also said by him is asked by him is now is not the time to do that. Now is the time to deal with the pandemic. I would use a similar analogy by saying now, rather than talk about motivations of both sides, I would look at what is happening and say, how can we stop this? And how can we possibly, if at all possible, because history does not uh, support my, my proposal, how can we find ways forward that would prevent this happening again. And one way of preventing that is not only to look at the political situation, which is abysmal, but just to look at Gaza that we've been pummeling with uh, huge bombs and say, what can you do in in an open air cage that has a million uh, people in it who are hopeless? What can you do with with a strip of territory where there is a total embargo on anything going in, including medicine, including food, including power or energy for their electricity, etc. Remove all this from the people. What do you leave them with? Nothing. And when people have their backs to the wall and nothing to hope for, what do you expect them to do? Sing the Kumbaya? Yeah, no, it's a very fair point. And I remember in 2017, when I was there, going into one of the hospitals in Gaza and learning that obviously, if you need some more complicated surgery, or for instance, cancer treatment, breast cancer treatment was the particular example in this case, you needed to travel to Israel, which of course, is pretty much impossible. So you can see why why there are frustrations and have been for years, can't you? Absolutely. And remember also, James, that in addition to the deaths, in addition to the wounded, in addition to the damage that is being wrought upon Gaza, Gaza also is still uh, uh, trying to cope, unsuccessfully might I add, with the COVID pandemic. So everything is happening in a mass of land of some 1 million plus Uh, residents, most of them refugees from uh, 1948 onward, they're trying to cope with all this and it is impossible uh, for them uh, to do anything. They don't see any hope. And I look at the pictures, I look at the pictures of those little babies who are either hopeless. I saw a picture of a baby whose mother had died uh, in one of the bombings. And I think, is this really what humanity is all about? Is this why all those organizations, including President Biden and the White House, are turning their faces and looking the other way and saying, oh yes, Israel has to maintain its deterrence, Israel has to uh, be able to defend itself. But defend itself against what? Against an occupation that it itself had institutionalized for 54 years and has now managed to become a PhD specialist in managing an occupation rather than giving Palestinians their right of self-determination? I mean, is that what we're talking uh, about? When you come and take my home from me, as is happening in Sheikh Jarrah, as has happened across decades, what do you expect? Do you expect people to come and say, well, listen, Let's sort of sit here, have a nice hummus and have a chat. There is so much malignant and malingering feelings of ill will on both sides. I mean, I give you the examples. Settlers descending upon uh, a field and burning olive trees owned by Palestinians. Uh, Palestinians 
a sort of a Palestinian driving a car in Sheikh Jarrah and ramming that uh, car and at uh, Jewish-Israeli uh, soldiers in the neighborhood, which immediately necessitated cement barricades coming up by the Israeli army. All this shows a feeling, and that feeling comes to one thing. It's not, as Clinton said, it's the economy stupid. I would say it's politics and occupation uh, stupid. Khaled Fahmi, one of the Cambridge historians in this country of Egyptian origin, wrote a little blurb recently in which he was responding to something that our BBC international correspondent Jeremy Bowen had written on what's happening there. And he said, there is one word that defines and summarizes what is happening across those unholy lands. And that word, and he used capital letters, O-C-C-U-P-A-T-I-O-N. It's occupation. You occupy the land of another for so many years, and you become so arrogant that you start thinking that it's your land. That has been the history from 1917 and the Balfour Declaration all the way to 1948, the Nakba or dispossession, which basically happened at the same time as the creation of the State of Israel, all the way to the 1967 war and onward. Both sides have claims. Both sides have grievances. I'm not saying that one side is crystalline and the other side is pitch black. No, but there is something in life called justice and called truth. And these are ingredients that are totally being wasted in this spate of violence and the world, from the EU to the United Nations, from the White House uh, to the Arab countries, whether the normalizing ones or non-normalizing ones, everybody is trying to avoid and everybody is using the Palestinian conflict for their own ends. Yeah, and I think it's impossible to avoid the word occupation and what that actually means. You know, land, basic rights. And another word I would like to introduce really is dignity. I mean, it's a key factor, really, because if you feel you've been stripped of that, then you're always going to be angry. You're always going to feel that you've, you know, been violated in some way. And, and as you say, this is, you know, there, are, there are two sides to this, as always, but there is a proportionality issue. Now, what I did want to do is talk a little bit about Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, because and all the stuff I've read and and all the, the various interviews I've watched, it's quiet. It's quiet internationally. It's quiet from so many different quarters. And I haven't heard too much from the Palestinian Authority. So assess for us the role of, of the Palestinian Authority in the problem and whether indeed it has any credible chance of being part of the solution. Palestinian authority has no authority in this latest spate of violence, James, because it has no role in it. And it has no role in it because it has been emasculated by the international community. Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu did their best through those farcical deals of the century in order to completely try to obliterate the Palestinian uh, conflict and uh, in so doing uh, cut off funds, in so doing uh, limit the impact that the Palestinian Authority has uh, in those territories that are under its control. And unfortunately, as we are seeing now, and you yourself answered this question that you just asked me when you said that isn't Hamas feeling that it is doing something to burnish the Palestine, the cause of Palestinian resistance? Yes, but at the expense of whom? At the expense largely of the Palestinian Authority that was set up during the Oslo years, a mechanism, a process, a, a period of time where I, as you know, was also involved with this process. And now that has collapsed, that has proven to be ineffective and has shown its shortcomings in the clearest way possible. And therefore, at the moment, we've got uh, uh, President Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah basically doing nothing except, uh, unfortunately, 
saying things that are totally like whistling in the wind. They have no say. They've been marginalized, they've been sidelined, and they haven't helped themselves because they have been they have shown to be ineffective. They have not acted, they have not been able to show Palestinians the grassroots that they are engaged with the Palestinian conflict. I mean, you ask a Palestinian in the streets, what does the Palestinian Authority do? And their answer would be that uh, the Palestinian Authority only polices us Palestinians, and it also helps uh, defend Israel through the joint uh, security convoys. So Palestinian Authority has become not only marginalized, but it is no longer an element that is valid at the moment. And therefore, when people talk about what is happening, I'll give you an example. Why do you think the intifadas, the previous intifadas, and this third intifada, limited as it is, it's still an intifada if you take the root of the word intifada in Arabic. Why is it that it happened in Jerusalem and not in the West Bank, and not in Gaza for that matter? Very simply, because Gaza is uh, militarily under the control, the oppressive control of Hamas, and the West Bank is under the oppressive control of the Palestinian Authority. Where do Palestinians have the ability to express themselves and protest a bit more? It is in Jerusalem, in Arab East Jerusalem, that is occupied territory under international law, and within the Israel Green Line as well, in places we've seen like Lod, like Haifa, like Yaffa, like other places where Palestinian Arabs who hail from the 1948 history and who remained within the Green Line have basically said enough is enough and we've heard the stories, we're not going to go over that now. So in a sense, it tells you a lot about the psychology of a political conflict where Israel is trying to oppress and suppress any Palestinian instinct for freedom, dignity, and self-determination, and the Palestinian factions themselves, be they in Gaza or be they in the West Bank, aren't making it any easier for free-thinking Palestinians either, because they are into their own agendas rather than the principles of self-determination that go all the way to Woodrow Wilson and come back to 2021. Well, Harry, if, if we therefore, from that, say that the Palestinians, wherever they are in the Palestinian territories, are not at the moment represented by the right people, it makes me think a bit of growing up. Because whatever you think about Yasser Arafat and the PLO, they were very visible on our screens, weren't they? And and I think the problem is here that with Hamas and with certainly with the Palestinian Authority, they're almost a bit of an irrelevance. They are a bit of an irrelevance, and I think there is a huge uh, difference between the time, the chairmanship of Yasser Arafat and the chairmanship of Mahmoud Abbas. Things were different then, and in my humble opinion, had Yasser Arafat not been disposed of, he would have dealt with this differently. He had a different tact, different way of acting, a different way of playing politics, uh, Mahmoud Abbas does not. The Palestinian Authority has pretty much subjugated the PLO. The Palestinian Liberation Organization was the best representative of all Palestinians. It has been manacled, it has been harnessed, it has been put in a little box, and the Palestinian Authority seems to be now the the godfather of all uh, Palestinian issues in the most incompetent way. And the question is, why is it there? It is there because it suits the purposes of Israel and the purposes of many other Western uh, countries to have uh, the Palestinian Authority there at their beck and call, because at the end of the day, it's better than an alternative such as the Palestinian factions in uh, Gaza. I'll give you a very simple example as an analogy, James. If you look at Syria, and you and I in the past have spoken about Syria quite consistently and about our hopes for the liberation of the Syrian people from the yoke of oppression exercised by the Assad family, more of a dynasty. And what have I said uh, then, and I say it now again, Russia 
is fully aware of how unpopular and how nasty the Assad regime is in Syria. But Russia, and of course Iran for different reasons, wants Assad to stay there because it suits its purposes to have somebody there who would act as its agent on the ground. Similarly, an analogy, take the Palestinian Authority, and that's what they are for the purposes of Israel and the West. It doesn't mean they're less Palestinian. It doesn't mean that they don't have that Palestinian instinct in in them. It's only that that uh, Palestinian instinct in them is being overwhelmed by what some people would call realpolitik and others would call doubtful, spurious decisions made uh, by uh, Ramallah. But then obviously if they've sort of fallen into this modus operandi of being far more useful to the international community, they're not going to be representing the aspirations of Palestinians. So I suppose my question is, does it need total reinvention? Can the Palestinian Authority under perhaps different leadership be something that does represent the aspirations of Palestinians? Or is this rip it up and start again time? This is a very interesting question. And again, uh, James, you and I have done this long enough to know that we've basically talked about this in different ways in the past as well. One way I've often said that one way of moving forward is to get rid of the Palestinian Authority, which was set up during the Oslo period anyway, and it was only supposed to be a transitional mechanism that would lead to full self-determination and the creation of a Palestinian state. Now, that hasn't happened, and at the moment it's even less likely that it will happen in the near future. So no matter how many vitamins my GP pumps me with, I don't think I will live long enough to see the day when Palestine becomes a fully independent uh, and sovereign state. Having said that, I have said it. I've said remove the Palestinian Authority, re-empower the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and move forward on a different tack. But the question is, given the realities at the moment, when you do that, it's very dangerous because if you remove the Palestinian Authority and you have no other institutionalized democratic form of governance that would take its place, then you are creating a black hole. And as you would know from your nuclear physics, as well as from episodes of Star Trek, if you have a black hole, then it sucks in everything, destroys it, and you have nothing. From something, you get nothing. It's matter and antimatter colliding. And therefore, uh, the question is, what Uh, could be done, how could it move forward? Rather than looking at it that way, I would basically say, why don't we have elections in the Palestinian territories? And of course, the Palestinians were really happy. They were optimistic enough, looking forward to elections uh, across the whole of the Palestinian territories for the Palestinian Legislative Authority, the parliament, for the Palestinian presidency, and also for the uh, PNC. And what happened at the last minute, the Palestinian Authority heads, Abu Mazen, President Mahmoud Abbas and others, realized that, you know what, they might lose the election, and therefore they decided to use this fig leaf of Jerusalem not being allowed, Palestinians in Jerusalem not being allowed to vote in the election, Uh, they use as a fig leaf to say, no, if the Jerusalemites aren't allowed by Israel to vote in the election, I'm cancelling the whole election. I mean, that to me is nothing more than a, a fig leaf, because I would have loved to see Palestinian residents of Jerusalem who are as robust about their Palestinian instincts as anybody else within the whole historical Palestine, if I were uh, in their shoes, I would have said, would it not be beautiful if those Palestinian Jerusalemites went and did vote, whether in foreign embassies the ballot boxes were or in international organizations or somewhere, and then as the boxes were taken out, Israel came and 
confiscated those boxes? Wouldn't that have been a brilliant PR uh, for the Palestinians? Instead, what did the Palestinian leadership do? It said, no, we're not going to have elections, and we continue with this dysmorphia of a political system where uh, there is no political system, where it's basically one man rule somewhere there, and the whole idea of Palestinians being so... uh, so pluralist in their approach to everything has been shaken. And interestingly enough, and I join this to another point I just made, interestingly enough, when Mahmoud Abbas cancelled, unilaterally decided to cancel uh, the elections and basically uh, stymie or stifle the hopes of Palestinians who had thought of a fresh leadership, and there were people there, okay, people who might uh, be debatable in certain clubhouses or in certain public agoras, but who actually were there from the Nasser Qudwes to Marwan Barghoutes to others who will have been able to do something. That didn't happen. But the irony of it is, and that's where I join up the dots, is that America, the, the West and Israel were very happy that Mahmoud Abbas cancelled the elections. They didn't ask for the cancellation, so they can't be blamed by the Palestinian and larger Arab masses for having done this. The Palestinians did it for themselves, but boy, weren't they happy with the result because they maintained there a a bloated uh, structure that suits their purposes far more than having a vibrant one that might actually take us in a different direction. Harry, Palestinians in Israel. Now, they make up some 20%, I believe, of the population of Israel. (laughs) 21.8%. The lawyer speaks, of course. Um, Yes, okay, 21.8%. Now, what does this mean for them? That's a very good question, James. I think there are a few things that could be said about the Palestinians in Israel itself. Because the difference between them and the Palestinians under occupation in the West Bank, in Gaza and East Jerusalem, is that they have Israeli passports, and therefore they're nationals of the state of Israel. That in itself creates already a conflict within a Palestinian who, on the one hand, has an oath of allegiance to the state whose passport he or she carries, and on the other hand, their own aspirations, their own hopes, their own nationalism, their own instincts. So in that sense, that's that's there, and that's been there since many, many uh, years back. And those Palestinian communities are basically, as I said earlier in this uh, podcast with you, that they are people who hail back to the 1948 Nakba. In fact, what Nakba in Arabic meaning the big catastrophe, uh, what... Um, many commentators and observers forget is that these people, the, Ar- the Arabs, uh, the Palestinians, in within what is known uh, sort of uh, blithely as the Green Line, they are uh, Palestinians who also are viewed as second-class citizens within the state of Israel. And until 1966, actually, they were almost under military governance by the state of Israel. You wanted to fly out, you wanted to vote, you wanted to do this and that. Even as citizens of Israel, they were dealt with in that in that way. It's only after 1967 that things changed a little bit. But with the change, a lot of the disparities between Israeli Jews and Palestinian Israeli Arabs remained. And so in a sense, these people now, with the attacks on Gaza, with the attacks in Sheikh Jarrah, with the cumulative frustrations that they have felt over the years, and I do mean over the years rather than the months, they suddenly joined the Palestinians in the occupied territories in terms of their own frustrations, and they aired them, they decompressed in public ways. Some of those were violent, and some of those I wouldn't agree with. So in a sense, it's all this mishmash of pent-up feelings of the, the arrogance 
of a military establishment and a political establishment and the frustration of people who feel subjugated to that political and military establishments in the state of Israel, be they citizens within the state or be they under occupation and under international law and the Geneva Conventions in the occupied territories. So this is basically what came to the fore. But one thing that really was quite clear to me when we heard of those uh, cases of uh, burning a synagogue, attacking this, attacking that, and it happened on both sides. Some Arab Israeli Palestinians were dragged out of their uh, cars and beaten in Israel. I mean, it's not it's not one sided. Both sides were basically in a fight. When all this happened, something came to my mind, and I said, "You know what? There is no." the Palestinians of the Green Line and the Palestinians under occupation. They're all Palestinians. And if anything, James, this whole unfortunate spate of violence with the deaths, the wounded, the damaged buildings, the, um, the even more hardline uh, attitudes that are being adopted on both sides, it has shown one thing, that the Palestinian cause has not been forgotten. And that no matter how much you normalize right, left, or center, how much you pretend that the arch foe is Iran and not the Palestinian occupation, it took seven days, eight days, a week, for the whole world, through media, through the TikTok generation that Palestinians are now famous for in the territories, it took one week for the world to realize what's happening and perhaps hear a little more and see a little more of the plight of those Palestinians who are living under an occupation that is unbending and unyielding. Just quickly, Harry, the Palestinians living under occupation in comparison with the Palestinians in Israel. I don't, I hope this isn't a mischievous question. It's not supposed to be. But, you know, when, when you mention, obviously, that sort of second class citizenry, which kind of makes a mockery of the Trumpian deal of the century, I would say, how do Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza under occupation look at those Palestinians living in Israel? Well, look at it this way, James, very simply, and it is most unfortunate, and I, I feel sad saying this, but it is true as far as I'm concerned. The Palestinians within Israel itself are second-class citizens. The Jerusalemite Palestinians in East Arab Jerusalem under occupation are third-class citizens. The Palestinians of the West Bank are fourth-class citizens, and the Palestinians of Gaza are fifth-class citizens. And they're not even citizens. They're just about barely residents. And if you look at that, you can then imagine what we are doing. You used a very nice word, and that is dignity. Part of the dignity that we derived is also in our belief that all humans are born equal. And therefore, when you start putting categories of first class, second class, third class, fourth class, fifth class uh, residents or human beings, it shows to you the levels of depreciation in human value that is concurrent with the unfairness and injustice felt because of an occupation, because of a segregation, because of a feeling of arrogance by the Israeli political and military establishments that it's gone to their head, that Moshe Dayan said it in 1967. He was the minister of defense. He was the one who was heading into East Jerusalem and has pictures of him in front of the wall. He said, Abayban, the foreign minister of Israel at the time, also said we should be careful that the victims, Jews, Israeli Jews, do not become the victimizers. And what we see today is a transference from victim to victimizers, where at the moment the whole concept of David and Goliath has changed, where, as Human Rights Watch has said, as Beth Salem has said, there is clearly apartheid uh, happening in different ways across all those five categories of sub-citizenship. 
Harry, we're coming up to three quarters of an hour of our podcast, so I'm going to condense it a bit to look at both Israel and Palestine's near neighbours and and the wider international community. Now, you've mentioned normalisation a few times. You may not want to say a a great deal more than that, although I possibly wonder about some of these these agreements, for instance, the Gulf Cooperation Council states like the UAE normalising relations with Israel. And you said earlier, you know, with with the sort of view that it might ease tensions in the Arab-Israeli conflict and give them more of a say in potentially helping Palestinians. Now, I guess normalisation is irreversible. It hasn't worked, has it? Normalization is irreversible. In one of my YouTube episodes, James, and I know you watched it, it says, I said, sorry, that uh, normalization is pretentious. All this business of suddenly becoming the best of buddies and sort of going into love fests and uh, what have you, in my opinion, is pretentious. And it's also a little bit distasteful when you see what is happening across much of the Levant in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But it is irreversible. I think it is. However, when this normalization process, when these fancy Abraham Accords were uh, called upon when that photo opportunity at the White House happened with uh, Donald Trump next to him, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and next to them, uh, the Bahraini and uh, United Arab Emirate representatives uh, signing on the dotted line. I, I thought to myself, is this really it? And then the answer was from the normalizing countries, well, look, we will have more leverage upon Israel and therefore it will be helpful to the Palestinian cause. Well, I have two questions for that. One, what leverage have those normalizing countries brought upon what has been happening in the last week or so, let alone across the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And secondly, equally importantly, what have they done rather than a couple of bland statements, in order to express their genuine ire and their genuine disapproval of what is happening uh, today, be that to the residents of Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem, be that to what happened at the mosque. I mean, if the mosque does not provoke a reaction by the Muslim Arab Sunni world, I wonder what does. So, I mean, this normalization is just another way of making public what we know has been going on for years out of the public eye. Now, Harry, in terms of near neighbours, Jordan, place of birth for yourself, of course, half Palestinian, half Jordanian kingdom. Is is it a near neighbour that needs to tread carefully with this? What can we expect or should we expect from Jordan? Jordan is a near neighbour that has to tread very carefully because Jordan, I mean, if you go back just a few weeks to the small royal spat that we covered, you and I, in one of our previous Middle East Analysis episodes, podcast, on what happened there, that in itself uh, typifies, highlights, underlines the the fear that the Jordanians have about the social fabric of Jordan, which, as you yourself just mentioned, uh, is a mishmash of uh, Jordanians, of Bedouin and other origin, as well as Palestinians, a lot of them refugees from 1948 as well as 1967. So in a way, Jordan has to tread very carefully. But I would say that that plucky little kingdom has been trying so hard to find a way to to undo the damages of this violence uh, that we have been witnessing. But Jordan also is looked upon with frowning disapproval by caretaker Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So it has not been able to do much more because when Benjamin Netanyahu disapproves of somebody, then uh, United States and the White House do not deal with that uh, person as much as they would otherwise. So at the moment, the 
efforts that are being deployed are efforts by Egypt, by Tunisia, by Qatar, uh, all of which have some sort of uh, connection, leverage with the Israelis and the Palestinians in order to try and uh, tamp down, dampen, uh, reduce, hopefully stop the, the, the violence. But yes, Jordan is in a difficult situation because on top of everything else, there is always this shadow that hangs on the Jordanian kingdom, which is what many Israeli politicians have said in the past, that Jordan is the future Palestinian state. And of course, Jordan is its own independent kingdom. It's nobody else's state. Palestinians have their state in theory, it's a question of making that theory become reality, which is why we're watching all this violence here, there and everywhere. Yeah, crikey, don't don't want to go into a non-contiguous state. We've talked about that before. And I think in, in future podcasts, we'll talk about a Palestinian state again. But moving slightly sideways, because you mentioned the, the US there, a Biden-led US now, of course. You know what, Harry, I think I've probably heard more from Turkey than any other international player in many ways. And in terms of the EU, the UN, Biden-led USA, the quartet that we've talked about, what is the input from the West? Because it seems to be turning the other way in a leadership sense. Well, I mean, as far as the others are concerned, they all have their own ways and their own agendas. But as I said at the beginning, uh, James, uh, all international organizations and the International Committee, in other words, the world, has basically been feeding uh, Palestinians with Prozac and trying to keep them quiet with statements and with nice words that don't go further than that. The EU has always been the best banker for Palestinians, but it has never, ever used its political clout. Uh, the United States is, whether it is under Biden, I mean, I was so happy when President Joe Biden managed to get Donald Trump out of the White House. But that was not because I thought he's going to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Far from that, I was happy that the world is coming back to a more uh, multilateral, conscientious frame of governance. But as far as uh, Israel-Palestine is concerned, all I need to do, and all I need to do really, is for me to go back to when Joe Biden was a young senator, in which in one of his famous statements, he said, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist. We can all be Zionists. I mean, that to me encapsulates what uh, Joe Biden thinks of uh, Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So America, the EU, the Arab countries, whether normalizing or non-normalizing, you talk about uh, uh, Turkey. Yes, Turkey has said more because Turkey has got a chip on its shoulder from its defeat in the two world wars, and it wants to prove that it is the godfather of uh, Sunni Islam. But Erdogan changes tax so often and shifts gears so often, Libya, Tunisia, Egypt, this, that, and the other, that you don't know exactly what Erdogan wants. And Erdogan, actually, for me, wants what is good for Erdogan. And that's what half of Turkey will tell you today, the half of Turkey that disagrees with him, by the way. So in a sense, uh, it's it comes again to, uh, to words, uh, unfortunately, James, that uh, I've touched upon, I've said that there is a state of apartheid in the country and it is important for people to examine what apartheid means. There is an asymmetry that is blatantly obvious, not only in the military confrontation taking place this week, but in the whole structure of an occupation that is being pummeled day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, and decade in, decade out, all this is happening under the glaring view of all those so-called uh, democracies. And it constantly brings to my mind uh, two things, actually, if I may. One, there have been instances of people sort of shouting against uh, 
Jews in personal ways. And that is totally unacceptable to me. This is not a fight against Jews. This is not anti-Semitism that should be the headline. The headline should be anti-Israeli policies. There is a huge difference between me disagreeing with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, policies and with me reviling or talking down Judaism or the Jews. They're two different things. I have absolutely no qualms in my mind to say that I am viscerally opposed to Benjamin Netanyahu's policies when it comes to Israel-Palestine as well as other things, but at the same time that I have very good Jewish friends, be they in the diaspora, be they in Israel, when I visit Jerusalem and go and have seder meals with them, this is no contradiction and the world has to understand this. And the other thing I would say, if I may, uh, James, is that the whole idea of the story of David versus Goliath in the book of Samuel, where uh, Goliath was a Philistine and uh, David was an Israelite, is not only a question, is not only one that has issues of equivalence between the weak and the strong and the weak managing to conquer the strong. And you have all those pictures of how David manages to defeat Goliath. Yeah, that is metaphorical. That is quite interesting. But I think it also asks us, and I consider myself uh, somebody who takes his Christian faith quite seriously, struggles with it all the time, mind you, but takes it quite seriously, where David is supported because of this pro-Hebrew allegiance, whereas for me, I support David because he represents justice issues, issues of the orphan, the widow, all these things that we know about in our own upbringing. And therefore, we are in a very difficult situation at the moment. And for me, it's when I see somebody like Itamar Ben-Gvir of Lehava, who opposes not only Palestinians, but all Christian presence in Israel. When I think of somebody like, I don't know, Bezalel Smotrich of the Religious Zionist Party of Tkuma that Benjamin Netanyahu brought into the Knesset, into the parliament, in order to keep him in his throne as prime minister, I sort of say, my God, what is Uh, what is happening to the world and where do we go, whether it's David and Goliath, whether it is the occupier and the occupied, whether it is violence versus nonviolent resistance, where are we? The world has not learned. We have a lull, we have a fight, we have another lull, and then we have another fight. So how long is this going to go for, and how can anybody claim that this doesn't matter in the larger configuration of the world? And as you rightly say, that this is actually hurting both peoples, I would say. There's there's no one winning here, or certainly shouldn't be looking at it that way. We mentioned the word dignity, you know, the word human in humanitarian. If you start to look at it through that lens, some of the solutions should be obvious, but I, I do, of course, accept that pretty impossible to implement because Harry we've talked about these things you've just drawn that together very nicely by the way but we've spoken about this over the years over I would almost say over the decades and the solutions are are still the same with regard to self-determinism for the Palestinians a place they can call home a place where they have an equal standing we've talked about this and yet I suppose the problem with solutions it's one thing knowing them or knowing the direction one should travel in to be a humanitarian and actually implementing them. I mean, they're two different things, aren't they? And that's the problem with this cycle of violence. They're absolutely two different things. And the differences are actually magnified or inflated even further. James, I hear some people talk about colonialism. Colonialism is very much fashionable these days because we talk of the colonialism of the Brits, the French, the Italians, the Dutch, everybody else. And how does that impact us today. Well, there is a colonialism that is happening now. And it's not only colonialism of Palestinian lands, it's settler 
colonialism. Now, what do I mean by that? What's the difference between colonialism and settler colonialism? It's almost a little bit legalistic, but it's also very practical. Colonialism is very simple. You conquer a land and you say to the inhabitants, the original indigenous residents of that land, you say, work for me. So you use these people to work for you as slaves. We saw this happen when we were talking about apartheid in South Africa. Settler colonialism is basically when an invading body comes into your land and does not tell you, okay, I'm your boss, you work for me. It tells you, I'm taking your place, I'm settling in your place, I'm kicking you out. And the the microcosm of settler colonialism, the latest one, is Sheikh Jarrah. That's basically what's happening. And this, all this builds in people more and more bile and more and more frustration and more and more anger. And every now and then it blows up. And of course, the world is full of agendas and each one has its own different agenda. And who suffers? The people who suffer are the ordinary men, women, and children who are displayed on our television screens as if they're kermes in a fate. You know what, Harry? You've kind of, we've hit the hour mark and this has been absolutely fascinating and and it's been good to hear your analysis, always is for me, frankly. But you've sort of wound in your afterthought with the future. I suppose all I can offer you really at this point is whether you want to draw it together in any final thoughts, but you've done it very coherently anyway. So it's completely up to you if you want to give us a a minute wrap or, or if you want to add something to what we've already said. It's difficult because I started this conversation with you, James, feeling a bit uh, subdued and a bit worried, and I still am. And uh, please do forgive me, you and all our listeners, whether that's one, ten, a hundred or a thousand, about me sort of going on a bit. But there are things that need to be said uh, and to be heard as well. Two things I would only say to wrap up everything that I've said. I'm not going to guess what Israel should do. I leave that to the international community. What I would say, though, because you homed in twice during this conversation on the Palestinians and what are they doing and how are they helping themselves. And we spoke about that. So my first of two afterthoughts is that, for me, what should happen, given the dangers, given the fractures, given the inertia of the Palestinian side, is for Palestinians to stop saying Palestinian Authority, Hamas, this faction, that faction, this, that, uh, those in Jerusalem, no, those in West Bank, and no, those in Gaza, Uh uh-uh. What about those within Israel itself? No, forget those. What about the large millions in the diaspora, if ever Palestinians manage to form one umbrella organization that would coordinate their efforts together, that to me would remove the competing narratives and would probably help Palestinians achieve their aspirations a little bit more credibly and robustly than they have done to date. Israel wants to continue managing the occupation and Israel wants to continue seeking its deterrent edge over Palestinians and over the Arabs. The Iran uh, spiel is all about that. What do the Palestinians want? Do they want to come together and form an umbrella organization that draws in Everybody from Gaza to Jerusalem to the West Bank, from the Arabs and Palestinians within Israel to those in the diaspora, in order to formulate a policy that would actually not only deliver goods, but also impact world opinion more coherently. That's one thought. And it's not a suggestion. It's a big question mark. And the second one, I would say, given everything we've spoken about from Uh, systems and policies of segregation or discrimination uh, all the way to 
what's happening with this proportional force, etc. Let me go back to my faith, because some people have difficulty uh, wedding politics with faith. I actually don't. I think they're flip sides of the same person I am. And when it comes to faith, I only want to leave our uh, listeners, James, with one thought, one verse only, which to a large extent encapsulates a lot of my thoughts. There are other verses, by the way, so I'm not trying to uh, keep uh, the copyright on this one. But uh, what I would say. Go For those of you who have a Bible or who know what a Bible looks like, go into the Bible, open 1 Corinthians 13. In there are three words that pretty much define what makes me tick on a day when I want to go hide under the mattress and say, don't pump me with vitamins, I don't want to live anymore. Those three words are, in 1 Corinthians 13, and I paraphrase, hope, faith, and love. And we have a lot of need for all those three. And for those who say, Harry, you spoke for an hour. It was not bad. It was good analysis. But at the end, you messed it all up by putting religion in it. I'm not putting religion in it. I'm reflecting a lesson from religion that helps me and hopefully helps you too. Very brave and very well said, I must say. But you'll probably cop some sort of flack, Harry, naturally. Of course I would. If, uh, if I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy anyway. <laughs> well, look, I, it just remains really for me to say thank you because we almost need to pause for breath. I'm sure our listeners need to, to pause and consider what you've said. Um, consider how they feel about it really on many levels so this is a lot to take in an hour is a lot but it deserves the time it, it i think we now need to pause and we need to think so you and i will go away maybe have a quick cup of coffee revitalize ourselves you talked about popping those vitamins i think you got me tempted to be quite <laughs> honest so we we will revitalize and next month we'll come back and, and speak again and as you said a ceasefire or a ceasefire of sorts will happen at some point we hope it is soon and without too much loss of life and we hope also perhaps without too much loss of hope you know what james i really genuinely hope two things one is a very grand hope which probably will not be materializing soon but the smaller hope like the mini and maxi uh, the maxi is that one day we do a Middle East analysis monthly, which is full of joy and fun and laughter, rather than always talking about uh, eschatological uh, topics. <laughs> and the other one, the mini hope I have, is that next month it will not be another episode on Israel-Palestine. <laughs> I tell you what, though, if we're going to do a Middle East analysis full of hope, rather than the pair of us being in the region at different times and in different places we should go together perhaps maybe we'll be a bit more hope filled if we're around the people that we're talking about absolutely and i have no problem with that and of course the pandemic has put paid to all my attempts in the last year to try and go and meet the people whom i call associates and some of them i even call friends i miss them and I look for the day when instead of doing this, I will be sitting round a table with some hummus and a glass of arak and discussing the world with them. Their philosophy, their subtlety are things that help me edify my person. Well said. And if appropriate, I'll be recording it. Ahlan wa sahlan, James. <laughs> <laughs>